This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Laura Jean McKay was before her time. She has written a book about a pandemic here in Australia before it even happened. Welcome to Published or Not, Laura. Thanks so much, Sam. Hi. <laughs> Look, Laura, I'm amazed that you have so clearly described people's panic. You've got the army moving in, the airports closed, foreign gunships making sure no one leaves the country and of course there's conspiracy theories and the new normal is to wear a mask. Now Laura how long ago did you conceive this idea and write your first draft? It's so interesting to try and work out when a novel starts I could say that the novel actually started 10 years ago (laughs) when I first conceived of the idea, but I really started writing it about seven years ago, which was still a long time ago. When I was writing the novel, I often hid the idea of the pandemic from people um, when I was talking about it because it seemed a little bit far-fetched. It was a bit too much of a speculative idea, maybe something that a serious writer wouldn't wouldn't um, spend their time writing about. And so the pandemic plotline uh, was really something that that carried along this notion that humans and animals would be able to talk about. This is where your pandemic is very different to what's happening today, because your pandemic has a name called zoo flu. So just explain that a little bit. Yeah, so zoo flu is a terrible flu. Its full name is zooanthropathy, so it's sort of a, a, a zoo disease. Um, and it enables people to encode and decode what animals are saying. So we're not reading other animal minds in this novel, but um, when a dog wags its tail and flicks its ear and sends off a scent from its nether regions, um, that all comes together and suddenly humans can understand what they're actually saying. So how, how are people reacting to when they get this zoo flu? Well, it's very, very rapidly spreading, rather like coronavirus. People contract the disease very, very quickly. It spreads throughout Australia, first with flu symptoms, but then these these other symptoms start, and people assume that they're hallucinating from the fever at first, uh, but then they start to realise that they are actually beginning to be able to talk to animals. And um, some love it, some become obsessed mm-hmm. with ants. Others freak out um, and hide themselves away in total isolation. And others like Jean, uh, the main human character in the novel, set out uh, to explore the world in times of this Zuflu virus. Well, some people, as you say, stuff their ears so they can't hear or even drill their skull to stop the sounds. They can either kill all the animals or they try to find out more. So you have eco-terrorists or animal liberationists, what do they want to do? Uh, there's there's rumours, just, just like with this pandemic in a way, there are a lot of rumours on the internet and in the news. There's rumours that people are setting animals free from, from um, you know, experimental places and farms. But then on the other side, there's a group of vigilante pig hunters who call themselves the Land Patrol, and they task themselves with protecting humans from these from these animals and also other humans as well. 
when there's other people who actually just want to talk to wild animals and find out about them, which brings us to the wildlife sanctuary where the story starts and Jean Bennett. Now, you mentioned her. Who is she and what's she doing there? So Jean is a woman in her 50s. She loves a drink and a smoke. She's going through a nasty divorce. She's a zoo guide, so she takes people around on a zoo train, and she really wants to be a ranger. And she doesn't, she has trouble getting along with other humans. She gets along really well with her granddaughter, Kimberly. Um, but she, she loves talking to animals, or talking at animals, I should say. And then when the flu comes along, like other people, she finds that what the animals have to say back isn't necessarily all um, fluffy what, what, and yeah. Dr. Doodle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and who's her boss, Angela? Her boss, Angela, is her daughter-in-law, a very formidable <laughs> character, and they have a very difficult relationship, um, both relying on each other, uh, but both resisting each other as well. So there's a lot and of tensions in Jean's world. Oh, gee. But I loved uh, Jean's insight into Angela, who came to work with the, the Birds of Prey show. And this is what Jean says about Angela. Back when she worked with Birds of Prey, she had flight in her eyes. An eagle maiden with a leather glove, straight out of some medieval fantasy book. Look into those big browns now, and there's just a bunch of paper clips and a digital calendar. <laughs> I love that. That's some sort of going out of practicality and into administration. And of course, we know Jean Bennett is Angela's mother-in-law and also the grandmother of Kimberly. And she's not your gentle, meek grandmother. You mentioned her chain smoking and a hard drinking and ready for sex with another quote from the book, any sausage-like guys that look like they're about to burst their skin. Well, but there's one animal that Jean loves best. Which animal is that, Laura? So, so that animal is the dingo Sue. Sue has also had a really hard life. She was taken uh, with her brothers from the community that she was born on and put into a show work, basically, in a zoo. Sue's a different sort of dingo. Um, she's not necessarily a natural show pony. Um, and she's also really, really uh, dedicated to Jean uh, as a character. When I was researching dingoes a little in wildlife parks, I was told that um, they they do often really dedicate themselves to a particular other dingo or um, a human um, as, as part of sort of a pack yeah. reaction, I suppose. And so Sue considers Jean part of her pack and Jean feels very um, comforted and by this. She, she loves that feeling. Look, um, Laura Jean McKay, I'm going to ask you to read the very first bit in this book, and it's all about dingoes. I can see the wild in her. She looks and acts like any dog, plays, wags, stares into my eyes with her baby browns, does chasey, catch, begs for biscuits. Then the dusk comes and she lifts her neck and howls the saddest song in all the world, and there's that wild. Dingo, owl, night thing. The sound is a warning. Loneliest you'll hear, wraps around your face, your sleep, your dreams. She's saying, hey, hey, there's something coming. The rangers here are always telling me, don't talk like that. 
They say how dingoes are just establishing territory, checking on their pack, dingo admin. But stand on the hot road that runs from the gift shop to the enclosures and listen to the dingo in her cage call out to the packs on the other side of the fence. Tell me that's not special. Tell me she doesn't know something about the world that you and me haven't ever thought of. Mm. Another part of the book, Jean talks about Sue the Dingo's knowledge. They can hear a thing coming even before the thing knows it's on its way. So how does the zoo flu get into this wildlife sanctuary? Ah, yes. Well, Jean has a son called Lee, who is the father of Kimberly. And Lee is your classic sort of free-flowing, no-shoes sort of free-thinking guy. Mm. (laughs) And um, he is pretty keen on getting back into that wildlife park to experience some of the messages that these very unique animals uh, have to sh- might have to share with him. But when he gets inside, he realises that it is a zoo and a lot of the animals are institutionalised and he finds the things that they're saying quite disturbing. So in the end, he goes off and uh, takes Kimberly and goes on a big adventure to f- find freer animals like whales. Mm. Uh, with the zoo flu, Angela hears the very birds that she's been caring for saying that she's now their prey and then the crocodile that she says but he said he wanted to play with me (laughs) oh she gets into trouble so of course he is very aware of son lee's shortcomings so when he disappears taking her cash her car and more importantly kimberly she thinks she knows where they may be going and who comes with gene acting as a bloodhound or a gps who's (laughs) that's right while Lee was in the park, he started freeing some of the animals and Dingo Sue was one of them. And she she finally tracks Jean down in the wildlife park. It indicates that the Sue the Dingo indicates that she knows where Lee might have gone and that mm. with her incredible sense of smell, she might be able to find them. So Jean and Sue set off on a very strange, um, <sighs> what has been described as a strange sort of Thelma and Louise, interspecies Thelma and Louise trip across Australia yeah you know and and with dingo philosophy the best plan is a plan (laughs) people have made plans and one of their plans was abandoning country living I love the reason for that that there were just too many animals talking to them yes that's right so people start to flock into the town not remembering or realising that towns are of course filled with animals, they're just different sorts of animals. There's town birds, town dogs, what, what to do about all those cats who suddenly have something to say. And of course the t- cows talk about sore udders and lost births and the battery pigs talk about more hope, freedom. And as Lee sort of realised, there's a difference between the dial- dialogue of institutionalised animals and free wild animals. And that's why sort of Sue gets a lot of interest along the way, being a dingo. You know, people do want to sort of interact with them. So, gee. That's right, yeah. Dingoes have such a um, a strange and contentious place in, in sort of Australian imagination and, and understanding. 
is a dingo um, a native animal? Is a dingo uh, a feral animal? Is a dingo an introduced animal? You know, there are, there are so many different, we like to categorise animals. And so I think for me, um, Sue represents a really contentious place in our relationship. With she says sometimes she seems a little bit more sensible than Jean. Uh, Jean, who sort of sees one way out of this, stay mm -hmm. drunk and smoke durries. And at one stage, she thinks she may have found happiness, fell her at my side and a talking dingo at my feet. But what of Graham Lee and Kimberly? She's uh, on her way again. And so the dingo really witnesses some very weird human behaviour. But eventually they make their way to, you know, this is another coast, a coastal town that crouches around a bay like a kid who won't share lollies. Just remind us, why was there such a rush towards this coastal town? Canines in general have this amazing giant scent, scent receptor sort of area in their brain. It's absolutely massive. Um, a huge area of their brain is dedicated to scent. And so they're very focused on that. Um, and Sue has a scent. She's got a mission. She's been told by her gene that they need to find um, the granddaughter. And so she's onto it. And so when Jean tries to stray, Sue tries to keep her on task and they end up in this little coastal town because Sue is fairly sure that they're going to find Lee and Kimberly there. What they also find is that there is a pod of whales who have come into this small bay in the water to try to join the whales and hear what they have to say to terrible consequence. Well, when things go wrong, there's always the safety of a church. Was this church really safe? Yeah, the church um, doesn't quite provide the safety that, that one might hope. I mean, at that point in the narrative, Jean has pretty much given up. She's hoping that, that people are dragging her to a jail cell so that she can just have a lie down and be locked up away from all these animals and people and just have a rest. Once again, it's, it's interesting just what's happening with this pandemic. And finally, there is a cure. Will Jean take it now we don't want you to answer that of course Laura Jean <laughs> but you acknowledge the title of the book the animals in that country comes from a poem by Margaret Atwood some similarities drawn between the two I did use the title <laughs> of Margaret Atwood's poem for my book and so of course I wanted to acknowledge that um, that wonderful, wonderful line and wonderful title um, that is Margaret Atwood's. But also I came across her poem quite early on and I just loved the way, I mean I loved Margaret Atwood's work anyway and I loved the way that she um, drew attention to the animals in this poem and made them a priority. And that was something, and had them wearing different faces. So the quote in the front of the novel is, in this country, the animals have the faces of animals. And later on in the poem, they have the faces of humans. I liked that idea that um, the animals might be wearing different masks depending on um, who they're around, or perhaps we place different masks on them depending what we want them to be. And, of course, I've been speaking with Laura Jean McKay, but you have a Jean, that's the name of your main character. Was there a reason for that choice? Yes, I was really having a hard time finding Jean. Um, she was all sorts of things. She was a young woman. She was a middle-aged man. She was a cat for quite a while. When she was called Judy, and I just was struggling to get close to her. And this was, you know, tens of thousands of words of ex exploration. 
And then I thought I might play a little trick on myself. I've always loved my middle name. Um, like it's the favourite part of my name. And I'll play a little trick on myself. I'll call her Jean just so I can get a bit closer to her. And then suddenly Jean just took off and was Jean and there was no going back after that. Well, if you could talk to the animals, would you listen to what they really wanted to say? Laura Jean McKay has set a book in the time of a pandemic where the infected can do just that. Thank you very much, Laura Jean. So nice to talk to you, Jan. Thanks. I was talking with Laura Jean McKay about her book, The Animals in That Country, published by Scribe. And now for David and his book. Australia has a rich and intriguing past. One of the many stories of the convict era was the escape by 10 prisoners who stole a brig and sailed it from Van Diemen's Land to Chile. Peter Gross recounts that adventure in 10 Rogues. So, Peter, welcome to 3CR. Good morning to you, David. Now, such adventures, expeditions, weren't actually uncommon. The escape rate was quite astonishing. The authorities were obsessed with making these places escape-proof, which they singularly failed to do. But people took upon themselves these tasks of sailing across the open seas. Well, only to escape. I mean, the only way out of uh, Tasmania is by sea in those days. Let's start then with Jimmy Porter, who's the central character amongst the ten uh, who escaped. A bit of a reprobate, uh, restless, and, and a psychological profile. A very intriguing sort of person. Well, it's, it's hard to know whether to like him or hate him. Uh, I mean, here's this bloke. Uh, he's a self-confessed thief, murderer. I... Uh, I will tell you from me that he's a, an inveterate liar, he's a determined con man, and he's that character that's so important to romantic fiction. He's a lovable rogue. That's the fact of him. But how did he get away with it? What, and also his psychology in terms of... Um, because he's written two accounts which you've used, but these accounts don't necessarily meld well. They do meld in certain places, but he's manipulated the story. Oh, he's certainly manipulating the story because one of the accounts uh, was written uh, when he was in prison and, and likely to be hanged. Uh, and his plea was, I, it was me, Gov. Uh, a whole lot of reprobates and awful, horrible people talked me into this whole dreadful act and I wanted nothing to do with it. I kept telling them not to do it and they kept insisting that I should join them. That was account number one. Account number two, where he wanted to... Because uh, uh, he was rather sort of a swashbuckling character in his own eyes and he wanted to write about himself as a swashbuckling character. So in this, in the second account... It was me, Gov, all the way, and, and uh, uh, I was the ringleader. I decided this, I did that, etc., etc., etc. Now, the fact of the matter is that he was sometimes lying twice, uh, and so you had this terrible problem of working out not only which account was correct of the two, but whether either account was correct, and very often neither account was. But right from the very beginning, his own family sent him to sea because well, that, of his behaviour. Well, that was the attraction, really, of the, of the story. I mean, I, I'm always driven, when I write these books, I'm always driven by the story behind them, and this is a roller coaster story if ever I came across one. And we basically, we start off with Jimmy in London, uh, he gets into minor trouble in London, and and so he's sent to sea to uh, uh, to sort him out basically. And uh, so the roller coaster starts at a low, and it begins to climb, and it climbs to really quite a height uh, because he gets to Chile, he and he marries. gets married in Chile. 
Absolutely. Well, there's a, a bizarre uh, fact, but it's a fact, uh, that in Chile at the time, where now in the early uh, 19th century, around 1820, uh, it was fashionable to marry English sailors. And smart girls uh, from Chilean society uh, thought they were marrying up if they married an English sailor. So Jimmy took full advantage of all this and married into a rich family who gave him a farm as a dowry. So suddenly, here's Jimmy living well on a farm with a wife, two kids. Uh, I mean, what could be better than that. But then how do you account for the fact that he deserts that life and goes back to sea and back to trouble? Uh, Jimmy spent the most of his life with his thumb hard-pressed on the self-destruct button, uh, and so uh, this talent didn't escape him on this occasion, and so he informed his family that he really wouldn't mind going back to sea again. So he goes back to sea, gets to Peru, gets into serious trouble in Peru, goes back to the UK, falls into bad company, gets into even bigger trouble in the UK, and finally he's sentenced to be transported to Van Diemen's land. And he ends up on Sarah Island. So let's start painting that picture of Macquarie Harbour and Sarah Island. It's, uh, it's interesting that Sarah Island is not as well known as, for instance, Norfolk Island. I and mean, everybody knows that Norfolk Island was this brutal hanging and flogging uh, and terrible prison. But Sarah Island was every bit as nasty and unpleasant. Yeah, there were daily floggings, there were occasional hangings, and, and it was a really brutal, horrible place. But the extraordinary thing is, they built boats there. Well, that's what changed. Uh, they were re originally sent there uh, because they were in the middle of the Gordon River, which runs into Macquarie Harbour. Along the banks of the Gordon River is the biggest forest of Huon Pine in Tasmania and therefore in the world. Now, Huon Pine had been discovered to be this fabulous shipbuilding timber. And we have difficulty in, in 2020 in understanding what I'm going to say next. But shipbuilding timber was strategic material. It was the uranium of its day, if you like. And so if you had good shipbuilding timber, then you had good ships. You had a strong navy. It won wars. It won battles. It protected trade routes. It conquered new territory. So basically... Good shipbuilding timber was without price. And the convicts were sent there in part to fell this timber. They'd roll it down into the Gordon River, float it down to Macquarie Harbour, and then it would be transported round to Hobart and turned into ships. But there was a problem. The entrance to Macquarie Harbour is shallow and tricky. Uh, and so if you loaded a boat up heavily with logs, and these logs would weigh tonnes each, uh, then if you put sort of 10 logs then into a boat, uh, then you'd never get it through the harbour entrance. So if you put two logs in the boat, you might. Uh, but that would mean uh, you'd have to have 15 boats instead of one. So uh, either way, you lost. And then suddenly someone had one of those light bulb moments. They said, why don't we build the ship's here. But here's the interesting thing about Jimmy's life. There's a movement of attitude and personalities in terms of those that are governing from incredibly brutal to forward thinking. And this is part of the roller coaster that Jimmy is on. Yes. And they started shipbuilding. It became the biggest and most successful shipbuilding yard in Australia. The guys who were shipbuilding, who were not convicts, but who were uh, brought there to be master shipbuilders, they were saying to the authorities, look, would you kindly go a bit easy on flogging these blokes uh, because they don't work terribly well after you've flogged them. Uh, and so the number of floggings went down by 90%. People were better fed, better housed, better looked after, etc. And so morale soared. I mean, it soared to a point where one convict had actually finished his sentence on Sarah Island. I remind 
people who are listening that this was one of the most horrible prison places in Australia by uh, its reputation. Well, this guy finished his sentence, but he was working on two ships, and he asked if he could stay on Sarah Island another two months until the two ships were finished. So morale soared as a result of all this. Now, what then happened was we, uh, George Arthur, the governor of Tasmania, the, uh, he was a hanger and flogger if ever there was one, uh, and he thought they'd all gone soft over there on Sarah Island. And so the fact that morale had improved and the convicts were healthier and so on, that was exactly the opposite of what he wanted. Uh, and so he decreed that the place be closed down and everybody be moved to uh, Port Arthur. Well, this wasn't a popular decision with the convicts themselves. So anyway, most of them were carted off to Port Arthur. But uh, the British colonial secretary had decreed that if there were any projects unfinished on Sarah Island, they were to be finished. So 10 convicts were left behind to finish a brig called the Frederick, which was incomplete at the time. And there were four soldiers left to guard them, or five, I can't remember which, and a, a, you know, a captain for the ship and so on. And they were meant to finish the ship and then sail it round to Hobart and then on to Port Arthur. And they nicked it instead. Jimmy, of course, had a family in Chile. Uh, and so he said, well, you, you could get to like Chile, really. You know, why, why don't we all go to Chile? So they said, yeah, OK, fine, Jimmy, we're off. And they did. And they managed to sail the open seas. Now, I want to sort of skip over a few things here because eventually Jimmy gets caught in the end. Others of the 10 managed to escape. But what's intriguing then is a change of attitude back in Australia or Hobart. Because did they, in fact, commit an act of piracy and steal a ship? Is transportation in and of itself a punishment? And there was this added notion of slavery. There was a, a change of attitude that occurred. So there's a, there are some serious thoughtful voices saying this is all unjust and it's terrible and it should stop. Uh, they were also driven uh, by the fact that if you had free labour and convict labour undercut the price of it, then it, the availability of convict labour reduced the earning ability of free men. And so they were a bit against more convicts. And there were other good reasons, as you, as you rightly said, uh, there was some suggestion that the whole system was illegal, that these people were sentenced to transportation. They weren't sentenced to be on a chain gang. Uh, they weren't sentenced to be imprisoned. Uh, they were just sentenced to be transported, to be exiled, in other words, uh, to Tasmania. And they were exiled for multiples of seven years in general. They were seven years, 14 years, or life. Those were the three most common sentences. And also then, Jimmy could have been uh, hung for an act of piracy, but there was some debate about the fact that did they, in fact, steal a brig called the Frederick, or was it just a pile of wood? Well, in the end, uh, it turned out to be a pile of wood. And it's a wonderful story. Uh, I mean, if we take piracy, first of all, uh, uh, you and I might uh, just use the word piracy, but the actual charge was piracy on the high seas, and they'd nicked the boat in Macquarie Harbour. Well, any fool could tell that Macquarie Harbour wasn't the high seas, and so that charge had to go. And the other charge, that of mutiny, uh, mutiny is refusing to obey the lawful command of someone whom you recognise to be in charge of you. Uh, well, there was no one whose command they disobeyed who was recognisably in charge of them, and so they said, well, that one, one won't stick either, that charge, so maybe we're actually innocent. But these subtleties of the law in an age of brutality. Well, absolutely, and, that, and in fact, well, I'm not, I'm not going to give away the ending of the story, but uh, uh, put it this way, uh, they survived. A number of them survived, and the end of the book concludes with you looking at these ten and what you can... Uh, 
actually ascertain as to what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But this must have involved an inordinate amount of research. Not carried out by me, but carried out by a lovely girl called Madeleine Bloomer, uh, who's the granddaughter of a friend and who's lived in Chile for most of her life and who's a history student there. And so for her, it was a, a terrific uh, project to go out and see if she could find anyone called Porter, who was a descendant of Jimmy. But what you have to bear in mind is these 10 blokes who landed up there, six of them got away before they were arrested and dragged back to Van Diemen's Land and charged with piracy and so on. Uh, So six got away, that left four. Uh, But of those 10, every single one of them had a strong stake in covering their tracks, disguising who they were, where they were from, etc., etc. And so, frankly, they succeeded. I mean, Madeline found a few odds and ends of stuff about them, but but we we couldn't track them down. But in hiding their tracks, so to speak, it's people, blabbermouths, that get them into trouble. Yes, absolutely. When they they got, in fact, to uh, a port city in Chile called Valdivia, uh, then one of the guys had a drink too many with a bloke called Cockney Tom, and that was the end of him. Uh, They're all up before the beak next day, and and suddenly they move from being poor shipwrecked sailors and deserving of every bit of help that hospitality demanded into being criminals on the run. But it speaks to the fallibility of the individual. I mean, Jimmy Porter is basically a very flawed individual and it's his own psychology his own makeup that gets him into trouble in the first place well, he didn't need to be there no absolutely right and and as i say he spent his whole life with his thumb on the self destruct button i mean he makes a succession of decisions which are we we the reader think are appalling god jimmy i wouldn't do that if i was you uh, well he does it and and terrible consequences flow it doesn't end well well there were some people that were sent to australia because they deserved to be there there were others that were innocent just read Marcus Clark's For the Term of His Natural Life. And by the way, uh, Jimmy Porter is a character in Marcus Clark's For the Term of His Natural Life. He's John Rex. Really? Yes. Because basically, yeah, Marcus Clark used a lot of the stories, the uh, cannibalism and all of those sorts of things that uh, people uh, perpetrated trying to escape Mm. in his For the Term of His Natural Life. The book is called Ten Rogues, with the subtitle The Unlikely Story of Convict Schemers, A Stolen Brig and an Escape from Van Diemen's Land to Chile. The author is Peter Gross, and it's actually an Alan and Unwin release. So, Peter, thank you very much for oh, coming thank in today. You. That's, that's been a great pleasure. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.